Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. Well, thank you for tuning in. Today we have a pretty amazing guest. His name is Ian Pritchard, and he's the author of the book, Where Did It All Go Wrong? Adventures at the Dunning-Kruger Peak of Advertising. I love that title. Ian, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Rob. When you look at the uh, luminaries that you've had on in the past, it's uh, quite humbling to be in that group. So thank you very much. Listen, uh, thrilled to do it. And I, and I believe that you are as luminescent as the other luminaries. So uh, and uh, the, the, the listener will is in for a treat today. And, and by the way, you will go down uh, in history because you're the first guest that we've had remote. Okay. So you're coming to us live. Uh, tell, us, tell us where you are. Well, I am at Nylon Studios in South Melbourne, um, which is, uh, you know, just before we came on air, I was saying this is my old stomping ground because I used to work just around the corner, so I know this uh, area quite well. But, uh, yeah, it's very salubrious surroundings. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. We should get a good show. Great to have you from Melbourne. And I think, you know, you sound, uh, you sound like you're, you're sitting right in the room with me. So uh, we're just going uh, to act as if, as they say. Now, uh, the, the reason uh, why you're on is uh, you wrote this uh, pretty amazing book, uh, Where Did It All Go Wrong? And um, before we get into it, I loved in the, in, in the, in the preface, uh, Mark Earls uh, described your book, uh, I think, quite well. Again, this, this book is uh, it's, it's kaleidoscopic in a way. Uh, those of you who haven't read it yet, and I, and I promise you after uh, Ian and I chat, you are going to uh, want to download it or at least to buy it uh, at the bookstore. But it's terrific. But here's what Mark said about it, and I'd, I'd love you to comment on it. He said, quote, each chapter is a lively essay on some aspect of the advertising and marketing world. Each chapter takes some received wisdom and kicks it around the park a bit like a can on the wet streets just to find the truth behind it. I mean, do you think this sums it up uh, pretty well? Uh, Yeah, Um, I think uh, a lot of of business books or advertising books kind of have one or two ideas and then that's spread out over, you know, 10 chapters. But I think with with this one, I try to jam as many ideas together. you know, as as I could. So I think, you know, Mark's assessment is right because each chapter or each piece is different. There's a connection be- between them all. But I did consciously, you know, I thought maybe this will be the only book I do. So I want to try and get everything into it. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was like a point in time. It was a sort of summary of a bunch of thinking and stuff that I'd done over four or five years, all sort of crammed into to one book. So I think for people... You can uh, you can dip in and out, you know. You can just take a piece uh, and read that, and then go back and, and read something else. I always remember. I mean, obviously, Rob, as you know, probably we're going to talk about music a bit as we go through this. But I always remember uh, Mick Jones from the Clash uh, when when they put out the Sandinista triple album. You know, he said uh, it was an album for people that worked on oil rigs. Hmm. You know, so they'd be away for three weeks at a time, and they could only have one record to listen to. You know, so they filled it full of ideas so that, you know, you hopefully couldn't get bored of it and would find something new every time you picked it up. So it was my attempt to uh, emulate that a little bit. It probably came out more like The Clash's first album rather than Sandinista. Well, I'll tell you, we must have had some sort of uh, cosmic mind meld because I literally... 
I was going to say, your book actually does remind me of Sandinista. <laughs> and to me, it's like Sandinista. For, for, for those of you who are, who are music fans, Clash fans, and again, if you, if you are not a uh, Sandinista person, please go and listen to this uh, record. Uh, but, but your book reminds me a bit of Sandinista because uh, it is chock-a-block full of stuff. A lot of it is unexpected. And the more I listen to it and go back to it, I go, oh, I don't remember that one. I mean, of course, I remember The Magnificent Seven, but, you know, there's some other, you know, crazy tunes on that record or you go wow amazing yeah well especially when you get into the depths of the third record you know where it gets a bit more experimental <laughs> you know things going backwards yeah that's true yeah. uh but uh, mark uh, eels also uh, he compared you to punk rock and he said it's the defiance of accepted structures and and, uh, and of course he also com- compares you to the clash and i think again this being the disruptor series podcast i think the defiance of accepted structures i mean this is what uh, we've built our business on and this is i think one of the things when you kind of you know launch into your rants uh and they're very they're eloquent rants by the way uh you are sort of you know as he said you're you're, you're kicking the can a bit about what's going on in advertising today. Yeah. I came into the industry probably quite late because I did other things. And so I'd sort of benefited in a way from not being trained Hmm. or indoctrinated or, you know, with what you were supposed to think. So I just sort of, you know, I came in uh, and just saw things, you know, just took it as as I found it. And I kind of trained myself. I started off as a, I mean, I was a graphic designer. Hmm. And then uh, creative, and then sort of moved over into into strategy. So I, that came just out of interest. I was more interested in how people think, how people's minds work, you know, which is really, you know, anyone in planning or strategy that mm-hmm. you know is your principal focus. And so I discovered things like the JWT planning guide from 1974, mm-hmm. you know, which was a hugely influential document uh, in terms of my thinking. You know, I think it's uh, it's kind of been it's fallen out of, uh, well, it's not something that gets, you know, given to young planners or, or gets taught. I think that's that's probably a mistake, you know. Although it was written in 1974, there's not a word uh, that's out of date. Everything still applies. Um, and so I benefited from not being taught a lot of wrong stuff uh, and just did my own investigation. So I think that's, you know, it's possibly why I came out more critical of where we've landed because, you know, I'd got there under my own steam, Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get to your journey in a bit. I, you know, you mentioned 1974. What what I learned in your book, which uh, was uh, very eye-opening, was that the meme that is, uh, you know, is such a such a bit of our current currency yeah. was actually invented in 1976. Yeah, no, I got uh, that's um, there's a uh, Richard Dawkins book, The Selfish Gene, that came out in 76. So that's probably one of the um, most influential sort of popular science books of recent times. So Dawkins really built on the work that had been done by his sort of mentor, uh, Bill Hamilton, who's a biologist from the 50s and 60s, and also Robert Trivers. I think I mentioned him in the book as well. And that brought that the idea of, this is not supposed to be a science podcast, so I won't go too far into it, but he sort of brought the, the idea of the gene as uh, as the sort of unit of selection, you know, which is fairly well accepted now, but this was quite a revelation at the time. But also he introduced the idea of, so if a gene is a unit of uh, biological selection, then the meme is a unit of cultural selection or uh, evolution, if you like. So he kind of coined that and really spawned a whole area of uh, memetics, you know, and that was picked up by people like Daniel Dennett and, and others. So, you know, that's kind of interesting 
for us in advertising because that's what we're trying to do is propagate ideas throughout populations. Now, of course, the difficulty is the meme selection works under its own logic, so it's not necessarily the best ideas that propagate. It's the ones that can replicate in the environment that they exist, and that's becoming more and more important for us to understand now in the era of uh, fake news and, and everything else, you know, truth and quality uh, of an idea is not as important as its ability to replicate in the environment, you know, which kind of leads on to this sort of idea of a, a Dunning-Kruger peak in advertising. All right, well, well hold on, because, you know, your, your book is a buffet, and <laughs> basically I was really just enjoying some of the seafood, and you went, like, right into the guacamole. So hold on one second, because we're going to get there. Just on this meme thing, though, for one second, you know, you talked about that it, it has kind of its own life to replicate. Yeah. I think what happens in the world, and I don't know, maybe, you know, you, you're an intelligent human, Sometimes I will throw a tweet out there or a brand will throw out an idea. And the one that we think that's been researched is the one that's really going to hit doesn't hit. And the one that you maybe don't think is going to hit winds up exploding. Yeah. I mean, how? Why? <laughs> What's going on here? Well, if I, if I really knew the answer to that question, then uh, I'd probably be a lot more <laughs> successful than, than I am today. I mean, it, it, you know, the truth is it is hard to predict. I mean, there's a, there's a little chapter in the, the book where, I, if you remember, the one where I talk about Elvis. Mm. The funny thing about Elvis is he probably did more great records than just about anyone else, but he also did more terrible records than anyone else. But just going through that process, it was a necessary process to you know it was quantity uh, often begets quality and it would have been difficult to predict which one of those Elvis things was going to go off but if he pumped enough stuff out there then some of them would yeah it's it's it's, it's almost akin to M Michael Jordan or even uh, Thomas Edison you know doing so many experiments taking so many shots that at a certain point the volume works in your favor to create excellence well that's it and we and we often don't see the failures of course you know mm. so that it, you know, there's a sort of, you know, the human mind is a pattern recognition machine, mm. you know, and uh, and in advertising, we're, we're, we're no different. So we tend to notice the things that take off and, and forget about the things that don't. And not only do we forget about them, we kind of completely discount them as though they, they didn't exist, you know. Mm. So I think in the, in the era of, of big data and everything, we probably should be better at noticing the failures. But of course, our minds don't work like that, so mm. we, we discount it. Well, now, before we get to Dunning-Kruger, which, uh, you know, is a big part of your title here, I just want to lay this out for folks, again, just to, just about uh, the experience of this book. So, you reference uh, Bernie Rhodes, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Sherlock Holmes, James Webb Young, Lita Cosmetis, The Sea Squirt, Dennis Rules, Charles Darwin, Maria Carey, Byron Sharp, Seth Godin and Jon Snow, and I'd like to point out that these these were all referenced in, in the first thirty pages of the book. <laughs> well, I did say I try to cram a lot of ideas in, in there, so I, you know I think there's quite a few more to be honest. Oh, but, there, yeah, there that's is. just the first there, thirty there pages. <laughs> all right, so now the title of this book is "Where Did It All Go Wrong?" and then the the parenthetical statement says "Adventures at the Dunning Kruger Peak of Advertising." Yeah. I think you're going to have to let our listeners know what the Dunning-Kruger peak is. Okay. Well, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is starting to become more well-known. It's an idea from in psychology. So uh, two, 
two American professors, David Dunning and Justin Kruger. As well as being psychologists, they were fans of uh, trash TV mm-hmm. and they used to watch things like American Idol and The X Factor. Do you get The X Factor? Yeah, of course. Look, trash TV? Come on. Yeah, the, these kind of TV talent shows. And, uh, you know, this amused them because, and me as well. You know, my favorite thing about those shows when I would occasionally watch them was the auditions. And you would get these, these people, st- you know, step up to to sing I mean, this was the mariah carey reference you know because they in their heads they sound like mariah carey but what's coming out of their mouth is a sort of hideous uh, cacophony that really doesn't bear any resemblance to music but what could possibly be going on that makes them think that they have some sort of talent so our two uh, psychologists were sort of laughing away at this and then there was a story in the news about um a fella called macarthur wheeler who'd been a failed bank robber in Pittsburgh. And apparently he'd gone out in broad daylight one day to rob two banks in the centre of Pittsburgh. Uh, no disguise or anything, just went in the bank, took the money and went home. And of course the police came around about two hours later and nicked him. But he just, he couldn't believe that he'd been caught because he'd read somewhere that uh, lemon juice was used in the manufacture of invisible ink. So before he went out to rob the bank, he'd rubbed his face with lemon juice and then he took a proto-selfie using one of those Polaroid cameras. And uh, so he took the picture, looked at himself, and there it was, uh, a blank wall. So he was convinced that the lemon juice had worked and he was invisible. And so he went out and robbed the banks. So uh, when uh, Dunning and Kruger looked at this, they they sort of came up with their hypothesis that uh, uh, MacArthur Wheeler was not only too stupid to be a bank robber, he was also too stupid to even know that he was too stupid uh, to be a bank robber. And so, uh, you know, they did some experiments to sort of, you know, replicate this idea, and then they come up with the what they called the Dunning-Kruger uh, effect, and they published a widely cited paper. And so, in a nutshell... The Dunning-Kruger effect describes people who are extremely confident idiots. Um, and I thought that's kind of interesting in the context of, of the advertising industry. Um, I think this uh, Dunning-Kruger thing is for real, the uh, sort of a uh, uh, triumph of uh, arrogant incompetence. I, I like the way you actually said it in the book. You have this, uh, what you called an, an epiphany where you were sprouting too much, quote-unquote, social media douchebag drivel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the story is I am um, because I got headhunted to come out to agency in Melbourne from London, and I'd been a bit of a mouthpiece in London, you know. For this was in the early days of social media uh, and all that stuff, and um, so I used to have a big uh, pronouncements: the sky is falling, advertising is dead, and people want to have conversations with brands and all all of that kind of stuff. I didn't, at the time, I really believed it, mm. and then I came out here. And I got taken out to um, speak to one of the uh, agency's clients. And so I did my usual, you know, dramatic social media thing. And and there was about 200 people in this room, and they were all staring at me with blank faces. And I was thinking, what's going on here? And a a kindly uh, brand manager took me to one side and said, Ian, this is all very entertaining, but you'll get nowhere with these people talking like that because they don't believe any of that stuff. And I was like, what? You know, how could they possibly not believe it, and she stuffed a book into my hand, which was um, Byron Sharp's book, How Brands Grow. Mm. So this is about 2010. I think it had just come out. Uh, And she said, go away and read that, and don't come back here until you understand it. And so I think I read it a few times over the course of about a year, 
Uh, and that was really, that was really my my sort of moment because I, because uh, you know it took me a while to get my head around it, but then that was when I realised, oh, hang on a minute, there's a an evidence based approach to doing this, which I've neglected, you know, and I've just been picking up on ideas that seemed appealing or fanciful or dramatic, but based on no evidence whatsoever. It was a hard moment, but that was a sort of pivotal moment because then once you sort of accept that, that you should be led by evidence rather than just what seems like a good idea. And that sent me down all kinds of different rabbit holes there. Once you sort of accept science into your heart, if you like, then it leads you off in lots of different directions. And that's how I got interested in other aspects of science, particularly psychology and also philosophy. You know, I think that that's that's a key thing to get your head around really quick is um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And uh, if there if there isn't evidence, um, then it's likely to be you know, lacking. Um, And of course, on the internet today, there's no shortage of extraordinary claims. Um, But whether there's the evidence to back that up, you know, I'm not so sure. Well, I think, uh, I mean, this is the heart of the matter where we are today. You know, when you look at, uh, uh, you know, certainly the the rise of data, the rise of performance marketing. But I, I like the word you use, which is evidence. Because to me, if we just say data... I'm not sure data has the insight. You know, you have to turn data into insight. And evidence, I mean, not to get all, you know, semantic here, but evidence seems to have wisdom uh, or or an insight baked in. I, I hadn't thought about, hey, you know, we have evidence to launch an idea. Yeah. You know, the the other thing about taking a sort of scientific or a pseudo-scientific from, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I can appreciate the science, is the reason you can trust science is because it's, uh, to an extent, it's wrong, right? Everything's provisional. And it's, well, the evidence suggests this, and this is what we know so far. But I, the, the thing I always like about, you know, reading, you know, properly written academic research is at the bottom there's always a paragraph that says the limitations of this research and then suggests other areas for other people to pursue. Mm-hmm. You know, good scientists basically start out trying to disprove their theory. You know, they observe something, come up with some sort of hypothesis and then do do experiments. But what they're trying to do is prove themselves wrong. And then something becomes evidence when you've tried several ways to disprove your theory and you can't disprove it then it's a, it's getting close to being a fact. Well, by, by the way, I, I do think, though, that this is a different approach to advertising because I feel like we have an idea and then we try to do everything in our power to prove that it's right. Yeah. And I wonder if there is kind of an interesting disruption where, okay, here's the idea. Let's look for the 10 ways that this thing could be wrong. Yeah. And this might be an interesting way to either, you know, approve the validity of, of the idea or at least come up with a very interesting way to deflect a client, uh, uh, you know, uh, dissatisfaction with, <laughs> with, with, with a given thought. Well, we are, you know, in, we're, we're obsessed with novelty, of course. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, look at, looking at, uh, in a more scientific way, you look at natural selection, which is inherently conservative, right? Because it's, uh, you know, what is it? A random mutation and selective retention. So, you know, it, it retains what, natural selection retains what works until such time as it doesn't. And then there's a small part of it which is conducting lots and lots of random experiments to try and find out the new thing 
you know, or the next thing that's going to work to add to the the ninety percent, you know, that, that still works, and then and, and things sort of drop out. So that's the natural law of the universe, you know. So I think, uh, you know, if we think that advertising works in a different way from the rest of the universe, I think we're probably off on a wrong footing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny because there's two schools of thought, which is on the one side we have a lot of commentators who are staunchly anti-digital. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you have people who are very, very pro everything digital and new and anti everything that was old. But the, the truth probably lies more in the middle uh, somewhere. But that's not that's not a good place to be if you're looking for headlines or to win awards. You know, obviously the whole ad awards system is geared towards novelty. And I think it's it's still useful. You look at stuff that comes out of Cannes and you think, well, that's it might not have been the most effective, but it's kind of pointing the way to things that might work in the future. And so it's useful mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. that point of view. One of the notes I made, you know, reading your book was, uh, I just raised this question, so I'm going to ask you about it here because it's uh, right, uh, right where we are in the conversation. Can we really make a brand famous on the internet? Mm. I mean, apart from Dollar Shave Club, I mean, I am racking my brain to what other brand is made famous just through digital, just through the internet? You know, big question. You know, that's the $64,000 question. I think it's something that we have to figure out, right, because there's an inevitability about digital media because you know even things that used to be analog are now digital even out of home uh, you know it's, it's, it's driven by digital technology i think that we're going through a sort of teething phase of you know in, in the book i'm pretty critical of what ad tech has done where there's been an assumption that everything is now direct marketing mm -hmm. you know and other people like bob hoffman you know have made a bigger deal of this than me but i think it, it is correct i mean to your point there i don't think it's, it is hard uh, to think of any brands that have been built solely through digital. Uh, and even, you know, people will say, well, what about Google? What about Facebook? And that's true to an extent, but they get to a point where to be seen as big, credible, stable companies, they have to come out and buy big, dumb media and billboards and television. You know, I think in 2018... Google's done some of the best Super Bowl advertising. Exactly. Yeah, I think 2018, I read that Facebook were the fifth biggest spender on TV advertising in America. Uh, I'm right there with you. In fact, I was at a meeting today. We were talking about making a big announcement for a brand, and someone brought up, you know, when Facebook makes big announcements, they use the newspaper. You know, when we worked with Airbnb, you know, when we would make a big announcement, guess what? We bought the New York Times. And what happens is that it runs in the newspaper and people snap it on their iPhone and then they upload it. And analog drives the digital distribution. Yeah. You know, that's what's happening. You know, that's starting to, you know, other people have coined the phrase that everything is PR. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So maybe that's given us a clue as to how things are going to sort of work together. I mean, I think the door is slowly closing on TV advertising as we as we know it. It's funny, I was talking to someone the other day and, and they, they said that they had a friend in, uh, maybe it was New York or somewhere, who had been, who'd just been hired by Netflix as a VP of advertising. And I was like, hang on, Netflix don't <laughs> run ads. And he was like, well, yet, you know. <laughs> that's a, that, that, that's, maybe that's an R&D function now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, Again, it'll be an evolution. So, you know, people are still going to want to watch content on a big screen. And, that, I mean, that's self-evident, you know. You know, it's funny, even in my house, you know, where we're not particularly geeky or anything like that, but, um, you know, we pretty much, uh, our TV 
viewing is pretty much Netflix and Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about it. So, you know, that shift is happening, even amongst ordinary, you know, just sort of normal people outside of our bubble. So that door's going to open. What that's going to look like, I'm not sure. I think we need, you know, this is where creative minds, you know, need to be focused on that and say, well, if it's not going to be 30-second spots like we're used to, it's going to be something else. But what what is that something else? Mm-hmm. In In your book, I think you laid out with stunning clarity the mission of every, you know, good agency, you know, good, you know, creative agency. And I'm just going to read it out loud. Uh, we can we can sort how this is going to happen. But but you said this is this is it. This is what we have to do. And I, and I love this. Uh, you wrote again, quoting you, our job is about getting brands noticed, remembered at the appropriate time and then bought. Yeah. That's it. That's what we're here to do. You know, we, we, we wake up in the morning, we, you know, sip some coffee, get to get to the agency. And this is our job. Get the brand noticed, get it remembered at the appropriate time and get someone to fucking buy it. That's it. That's all we got to do. It's true. But it's easier said than done, of course. Yeah, yeah. But listen, I think, but first you have to say that I'm not sure if you mm. uh, went to, uh, you know, 10 different agencies tomorrow and said, what are you here to do? I'm not sure you'd get that kind of stunning clarity. No, and not only that, but I think, that, you know, big parts of the industry are having a bit of an identity crisis because that's not even a concern. Right. You know, it's because, uh, you know, you've got creative agencies who don't want to make advertising. Right, or don't want to make communications. They want to do something else, whether it's save the world or... We're making content. Uh, yeah, or content. Whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. yeah, and then you've got media agencies who don't want to be media, who want to be like uh, management consultants. And then you've got management consultants who want to buy creative agencies. It's all got a bit confused where nobody wants to actually be doing what their part of the equation is. You know, we might we might actually, things might settle down if everyone would sort of, you know, re- refocus on what their part of the chain is. Oh, yeah. And by the way, I'm going to let people in on a little secret. Getting the brands noticed that's the fun part. Yeah. Getting them noticed at the appropriate time, that's the really cool, challenging part. And getting them bought, that's the most satisfying part. I mean, that's why we got into the business in the first place. So I don't know what the hell we're doing, but I want to go back to that. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> but, it's been, you know, it has become hard. So it's the cliche, you know, that we're living in a, a attention economy. Yes. So the idea is that, um, you know, attention is the scarcest resource right so there's so many more things competing like human attention is finite right we've only got so much to go around but now there's far more things competing for that attention than there's ever been not least other people you know and so i mean this comes back to human nature i mean we're kind of wired to compete with each other for things like status and you know uh, and other things so you know social media i mean that's been really disruptive not in a in the advertising sense, but in terms of how it's affecting our our minds, or mm-hmm. um, I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that it's not that the internet, you know, is rewiring the brains of millennials or anything. It's just it's the products of the digital economy are so well tuned to uh, affecting the mental processes that already exist within our minds, you know, which is, you know, and competing for status, not, you know, not insignificantly, uh, one of the most uh, important. So the idealized lives that that people project, you know, on the likes of Instagram and and Facebook or 
on Twitter where we all compete to be the most intellectual by copying quotes from other people and claiming them as our own and all that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, but that's how these products have thrived because they understand human nature very well. I, by the way, I just retweet you and Tom Goodwin and, and I'm good to go. <laughs> I keep waiting for Tom Goodwin to retweet me. Yeah, never happens. You're going to have to wait, buddy. Every <laughs> once in a while, he'll heart you. Yeah. Not, he doesn't retweet anybody. Um, so I guess after you know having this uh, very intellectual conversation that we had, I, I go back to your title. So where did it all go wrong? Um, it comes back to the sort of the Dunning-Kruger idea. And I think that's, there's never one thing, obviously. There's, there's multiple factors. But I think if you look at the average age of people in the industry, you know, it's gone, it's gone down, right? So we're packing agencies full of youth. And there's a lot of benefit to that, obviously. Enthusiasm, you know, ability to work long hours and all that kind of stuff. You can see, you can see the rationale, but I think... Cheap too. And cheap, yeah. <laughs> but that's been to the detriment of actual thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not that young people don't have the ability, but I like to, uh, there's a thing I always remember, you know the comedian George Carlin? Of course. Yeah, I, I read an interview with him towards the end of his life and he was sort of reflecting on his, on his sort of career and everything. And he said, that, he said that, you know, the great thing about older people is they just have a much bigger data set of experience to draw on. Mm. And, you know, I think that's the, the overemphasis on youth in the industry. For all of those benefits that we've talked about, there's detriments as well, which is just the, you know, lack of experience, lack of knowledge of how things work. And, and it's unfair to expect someone who's 24 to have all of that because uh, they just don't have the, the life experience. You know, it takes time to read and to study and to do experiments and to fail and to get things wrong and, you know, to figure out how things work. And so I think collectively as an industry, I think we would benefit from just taking a step back and think let's um, not be so quick to um, shove people out the door once they get past a certain age, just, you know, because for all of those reasons, more expensive, less flexible with working. But when you have, you know, like George Carlin said, when you have that big data set to draw on, you know, you can, uh, you know, I mean, you know, we can say this because we're a bit older, you know, but you can, you've seen things many times before and you, you kind of intuitively, through experience and understanding, know solutions. Exactly. I think and again, this 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 is also you know kind of born from your book. I think for you know every every Johnny Rotten, you need a Malcolm McLaren. You know the the Beatles needed Brian Epstein. You know the yeah. you know we had Andrew Lou Goldham on the show. You know the Stones benefited from him. Uh, you know Bernie Rhodes in the Clash. I think there's a certain um, you know you need uh, you need a an elder statesperson. Uh, and of course, you mentioned the slits. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, 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 uh, I, I don't know who uh, was overlording uh, uh, the first ladies of punk rock, but uh, I'm sure there was someone guiding them to, to be a combination. I don't think it's old at the expense of youth or youth at the expense of age. I think you need both. Yeah. But there's certainly uh, an elder states person that can help uh, guide and nurture the talent. Yeah. Well, I think Barney Rhodes took the slits on, on tour with the, with the Clash early oh, did on. He? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that's right. That's right. I tell you, do you want to know my funny Bernie Rhodes story? Go for it. Uh, so this is back in about 2007. So in the first flush of Twitter and all that. So I was I was playing around on on, on Twitter and everything. And uh, I came across Bernie Rhodes had a had a website BernieRhodes.com. I thought, oh, I'd forgotten about Bernie. By, by the way, Bernie Rhodes. 
but before just just sort of, sort of the, some of the kids kids at home you know tell tell us uh, Bernie Rhodes and his connection yeah. to the Clash. So uh, Bernie Rhodes was a uh, was friends with Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood back in the day, and uh, and when McLaren started putting the Sex Pistols together, Bernie Rhodes obviously didn't want to be left out, so he put the, he sort of got the Clash together at the same time. Uh, I mean, there was a third. There was a third guy called uh, Jake Riviera who was in that group. Oh, the and he, uh, yeah, so he had the Damned and Stiff Records, Ian Jury, and all that. So you know, that was how punk as a sort of movement really got momentum early on, because it wasn't just one band. It was you know, it was like three, and then four, five, six. Uh. But anyway, Bernie Rhodes. I sort of found him online about two thousand seven, and they had this really curious website full of slogans and. You know, very Bernie, typical stuff. Uh, and, of course, there was an email address there. So I just sent him an email. I said, hey, Bernie, how's it going? Blah, 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 blah. Clash fan, all that stuff. And I said, I don't know if you know. I said, but there's all these things in social media kicking off, like Twitter and stuff. And I said, it just seems ideal for what you do, you know, because it's little sound bites, it's slogans and everything. You know, you should get into that. And he sent me back this uh, this email, very sort of, uh, terse email saying social media is for ranters and bullshitters. <laughs> he, says, he says, you'll never catch me on there. And I thought this was hilarious. And I thought, oh, poor Bernie being left behind uh, by new technology. But of course, in hindsight, looking back, you know, he was absolutely correct. You know? <laughs> <laughs> As he was about so many things. Yeah, but look at what these things have, have become. So. so on your journey, so you mentioned uh, you started out uh, as, a, uh, as a graphic designer. You got into planning. You're self-taught. You're uh, kind of a, uh, speaking of the slits, uh, Stanley Pollitt, who was uh, the father of one of the, the, the slits. That's right. Kind of a Stanley Pollitt uh, person. Just, you know, like, what was the moment where you went from planning, uh, from, from design to planning? So I became a designer. I, I was at art school and, um, I mean, late 80s, art school. So I was a painter. And then they, they kick you out of art school. But, of course, you don't get any business training or, or how to set up an exhibition or anything. You just, you know, you get all this art theory and painting and then you just put it out into the world. Right. So I didn't have a clue what to do. But the other thing I was interested in was music. And it was around about the same time. Uh, so while I was at art school, I used to DJ at art school parties. And this was kind of pre Acid House, mm. uh, if you like. But but then some kind of techno records started coming out and house records and I thought, oh, this is something interesting. Uh, so I started a little early uh, sort of, it wasn't called House or anything at the time or Acid. It was, I don't know what it was, but it was just, you know, playing sort of weird electronic Belgian music and, <laughs> and, and stuff. And then that spawned, then we'd started to make our own music. So, you know, there was a guy that I knew had some kind of Atari machine that you could, a rudimentary sequencer. So we started making our own records, you know. And so, but when you make a record, I mean, for the kids listening, this in those days, they were black plastic 12-inch things that you had to stick a needle on, you know, mm -hmm. to play. But you have to have a label and you have to have sleeves and all that stuff had to be designed. So they said to me, well, you're the arty one. Uh, you can do that, you know. So I had to figure out how to, you know, work a, Apple computer, it was back in 1989 or whatever, 1990, um, and just sort of became a designer. And then, you know, eventually I thought, well, I better get a proper job as well. So that was how I blundered into that, just sort of setting ads for a local newspaper. Uh, and then I moved to London in about 2000 during the sort of dot-com, first dot-com kind of boom. Hmm. Um, and so, and then eventually became creative director at a gaming 
company, but then I was never a great creative director. I was kind of a bit average, but I had a sense that I might be great at something. So moved into into planning then. And then just, you know, I was more interested in, in, you know, I got more interested in human nature and psychology, how the mind works. And that seems to land more naturally in strategy or planning than than creative. So that was handy uh, for me. But it's good having having had experience in both camps because I can think I can be, as a planner, I can be more empathetic to the concerns of, of creatives, you know, because I've done that. Uh, as well so I think that that helps in that working relationship there's often a bit of a divide between planning and creative you know never the twain shall meet Uh, so you know I like to think I can to some extent cross that uh, divide a little bit very good and uh, you know this is the 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 part of the show where we take your sum total of wisdom all the data that uh, you've assembled uh, in your mind and stuff and we ask you to give one piece of advice. So what would you tell? And again, you could think about, uh, you know, we've got clients who listen to the show. We've got uh, rising creatives, yeah. uh, my mother, you know, so whoever you think, uh, what's what's one piece of advice in this uh, day and age where, where things seem to have gone wrong as we are all living under the effects of Dunning-Kruger? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very, very simple. You know, I think we're living in an environment where there's so much information, but never forget that Sturgeon's law you know, applies. So for people who don't know what that is, so Theodore Sturgeon was um, a science fiction writer and critic and impresario. He actually wrote some of the early episodes of Star Trek. But anyway, he was a, so he's a big luminary in science fiction field. And once he was criticised by the New York Times literary critic who said that, you know, that his novel was rubbish and 90% of science fiction writing is rubbish. He sort of took offence at that and then he thought about it for a minute and he thought, hang on a minute, science fiction writing conforms to the same law of quality as any other creative endeavour. And that is 90% of everything is shit. So... We should remember that because every now and again, something new comes along like influencer marketing or content marketing. And it seems to be exempt from that rule for a little while because everyone thinks that everything, you know, that comes out there is great. But it's not. Most of it is crud. Uh, not That's not all of it, but, but most of it. So I think that, you know, that's a good rule of thumb just to have in your head when you're evaluating any creative endeavor is just remember that most of it is always going to be crap and it's no different you know whichever genre of things uh, you're looking at very good very good well ian uh it was great to chat with you uh your book is incredible where did it all go wrong adventures at the dunning kruger peak of advertising i urge you folks at home to uh have a read uh, it will it will it will truly blow your mind uh and i will leave you with this uh, that uh Uh, Ian lays out the world's greatest story about Picasso, which we're not going to share with you here. You must read the book to to learn. That's a a great story, that Picasso. All right, thanks. All right, man. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, brought to you by TBWA Shide Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashidayny.com.